Hi, this is Seth Gruber with Unaborted Haze. You're probably aware this last week was the March for Life in D.C. and it was the 47th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the judicial tyrannical decision of the Supreme Court that defined a actual biological human baby in their mother's womb as a non-person. And the results and consequences of that decision are not just the 61 million slaughtered unborn children, but the millions of wounded women treated like prospects by the abortion industry. And so... Uh, I had the privilege and opportunity of preaching at Calvary Chapel of Downey last Sunday on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is the Sunday right before January 22nd, which of course is the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. Calvary Chapel of Downey is one of the most pro-life churches in the state of California amongst some others, some others of which are Calvary chapels. And so that was a real privilege and honor to join that community of believers. So I think you'll really enjoy this message. Share this with someone who's pro-choice. Share this with someone who's a Christian in your life, but maybe is pro-choice as well, and has never re-examined their position in light of scripture, in light of reason, and in light of history. So go ahead and enjoy this special Sanctity of Human Life message at Calvary Chapel in Downey, entitled Loving Our Unborn Neighbor. Good morning, friends. How are you? Thank you for that warm welcome. It's certainly a privilege and honor to be here. I have long respected the leadership and pastoral team at this church for their commitment to life. And so it's a real honor to stand here and share with you. However, I approach you this morning with a heavy heart. This is not a joyful or happy Sunday, friends. We're going to talk about a lot of joyful truths, of course, this morning, because the gospel is full of joy and truth, but it's not a happy Sunday. It's a very somber Sunday. This is the sanctity of human life Sunday. You see, on Wednesday of this week, it will mark 47 years since the Supreme Court of the United States of America decided that there is an entire class of human beings that don't get the title person and therefore don't get the legal protections therein. Repeating the judicial tyranny, by the way, of our own country and how we treated African Americans. Our country wrongly and disgustingly once decided that African Americans were not full persons, a black stain on the moral compass of our country. And we're doing it again. Wednesday will mark 47 years since the Supreme Court decided that if you're an unborn human being, you don't get the rights of personhood guaranteed in the Constitution and granted to you intrinsically by the creator of the universe, who himself came as a fetus, as an unborn child. Friends, the greatest tragedy after the 60 million slaughtered unborn children, and the millions of wounded women who are treated like prospects by the abortion industry is unfortunately the deafening silence of the American church on the abortion of the lambs, the killing of babies, a baby, a child, children, little children, those of whom God once said, Jesus once said, if you cause one of these little ones to even stumble, it would have been better for you to have been drowned. Dear friends, if that's how seriously God takes 
those of us who would cause a little one to just stumble? What about the dismembering of the limbs of little ones? What about 3,000 dismembered little ones every day in America? What about a million dismembered little ones every year in America? What about 61 million dismembered unborn humans since 1973 in America? The deafening silence of the church was so loud it led the renowned theologian Francis Schaeffer to once say that every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet I'm so grateful that Calvary Chapel of Downey has been an exception to this tragic rule, an exception to the deafening silence of the capital C church in America. Pastor Jeff and the leadership here have set a high bar for decades and cared more about truth and the lives of unborn children than their political and spiritual reputation in this state and in this city. And for that, I am so thankful. So why don't you thank your leadership and pastors for their leadership on this issue? And by the way, your pastors asked me to say that this morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They didn't ask me to say that, but I, I would have if they had, because it's certainly true. And that's why I'm privileged and honored to join you on this somber Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Last year, a friend of mine by the name of Dr. Mike Adams, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, debated an abortionist, an actual man who kills unborn children in a public forum on the moral question of abortion. Okay. And the name of this abortionist is Dr. Willie Parker. Dr. Willie Parker is an interesting man. Most abortionists try to remain out of the public square because they know the controversial nature of what they do. However, he writes books and he speaks at conferences and he describes himself as a Christian abortionist. You can watch this debate. It aired last year. It's available on YouTube. Dr. Willie Parker wrote a New York Times opinion editorial in 2015, friends, entitled, Why I Provide Abortions. I want to read you two sentences from his article. He said, The Good Samaritan reversed the question of concern to care more about the well-being of the person needing help than about what might happen to him for stopping to give help. I realized that if I speaking as an abortionist, were to show compassion, I would have to act on behalf of those women. My concern about women who lacked access to abortion became more important to me than worrying about what might happen to me for providing those services. So you see, Dr. Willie Parker says that abortionists, if you really think about it, are just like good Samaritans because they're compassionate human beings showing love to women in need of services. Those services being the dismemberment of their unborn offspring. Why is this relevant? Well, not only is this a sign of the dark spiritual depravity of the abortion industry, but unfortunately, this is a growing worldview and perspective even amongst certain individuals who identify as Christians. Sadly, a growing number of our brothers and sisters in Christ who say they love Jesus don't believe there's any contradiction between their faith and their support of abortion. So friends, in response to this type of spiritual confusion, 
and moral confusion in America, and sometimes even in Christian circles, we as followers of Jesus need to understand what true compassion is, don't we? What real truth is, what real love is. And we need the real Jesus to show us what that looks like. He is our king and he is the one who came as an unborn child to this world. So, strangely enough, let's turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan to set the stage for our conversation this morning. And rather than finding some strange spiritual justification to pursue a career as an abortionist, I believe we're going to find a very different message from our Savior. A very different message as to what it means to be compassionate, what it means to love people who need our help. You guys know the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25. And this is a very important parable told by Jesus because it reminds us, friends, of God's most important commandments. Jesus shares his heart with what are the most important commandments very clearly. But it's also an important parable because it reminds us of our utter failure to obey those commands. We are indeed helpless to fulfill the law of God that he demands of his followers. So I want to read to you the first section of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have it on the screen for you as well. I think this will be a helpful launching point into our conversation on abortion this morning, okay? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, that's a question we should all be asking. How do I get to heaven, Jesus? What shall I do to inherit eternal life with you? So the man's asking the right question, but we learn more, don't we? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, He answers. He knows the answer. He tells Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He nails it. He knows the law of God. He knows the right answer. But then he tells Jesus, desiring to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Friends, in response to this question, in response to the question, Jesus, how do I spend eternity with you? And who is my neighbor? Jesus chooses to tell this parable. And you know it, right? Let me summarize it for you. A man's traveling on the road and he is apprehended by robbers. He's beaten, he's mugged, he's robbed, he's left for dead. He's sitting on the side of the road, bleeding out, half dead. And a Levite and a priest walk by. You could call them pastors. Religious leaders, people who just like what, just like the lawyer could have answered the question correctly. What is written in the law? How do you read it? They knew the word of God. They knew that it was to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But these two religious leaders, what do they do when they see a bleeding neighbor who needs their help? They walk by on the other side of the road, don't they? They literally pretend like they don't see a bleeding dude, a neighbor who needs their help. It was the good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy. Because remember, friends, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Who, when he saw the bleeding victim, he showed compassion. That's what Luke's gospel says. He took compassion. 
He went to the bleeding victim and he poured on oil and wine and he bandaged the man's wounds and he put him on his own donkey so he had to walk. And he took the bleeding victim to the nearest inn and he began caring for the man. Then he told the innkeeper, I have to go now. When I come back, I'm gonna pay you for any other costs that accumulated in caring for this bleeding victim while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor, to love a bleeding victim. This is the story Jesus chooses to tell to exemplify loving a neighbor in response to a question, and who is my neighbor? Friends, is the lawyer challenging Jesus in this parable really overly concerned about knowing who his neighbor is? Is that why he asked the question, Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I just love you so much, Lord. I just want to follow your commandments so badly. So please tell me who my neighbor is because I really don't want to leave anyone out of the category of neighbor because I want to make sure I sufficiently love all neighbors. You're laughing inappropriately so. And who is my neighbor? What an offensive question to ask. Because the Bible is clear that every human being is our neighbor, isn't it? The lawyer is literally trying to figure out how he can get to heaven and still hate certain people. He asked Jesus, how can I get eternal life? But also, Lord, I want to create categories of neighbor and non-neighbor so I can conveniently shirk myself of the responsibility of loving those that I don't want to, that I don't view as neighbors. Do you see what he's doing? What an offensive question to ask the creator of the universe and who is my neighbor? And Jesus, our savior in his brilliance, he switches the question, doesn't he? From who is my neighbor to are you a good neighbor? And he uses the example of the good Samaritan as a mirror to the lawyer and says, are you this type of neighbor? Are you a good one? He's creating categories of neighbor and non-neighbor in order to hate certain people and not love those that are hard to love, that are inconvenient to love. Friends, the answer to this question, are we a good neighbor, ought to humble all of us and drive us to our knees. Because not one of us can fulfill the standard of love that Jesus requires, can we? You know the standard of love required, don't you? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yes, an overly quoted verse. Sometimes we become numb to it, don't we? That's a hard message. Every single one of us naturally hates those who tick us off, who do us wrong. And Jesus says, you actually have to pray for those who persecute you. That's the standard of love Jesus requires. Jesus tells us again in John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Okay. Oh, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Oh, Lord. Because we need only ask, how did Jesus love us? Well, a very painful, prolonged physical death and the literal wrath of God poured out on Jesus so that we didn't have to endure it. And then he says, love others as I have loved you. (laughs) To death, to the uttermost, with everything you have. That's the standard of love that Jesus requires. But who loves like that all the time? Do Do we even love our families like that all the time? 
Any wives want to vouch for their, their husband's perfectly exemplified, consistent love on a daily basis? Or vice versa, frankly, right? Of course not. We don't even love our families like that all the time. Much less our enemies. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a parable of, enemy, of, of an enemy loving an enemy. In Israel at that time, Jews and Samaritans were considered enemies. And he loves this bleeding victim. <sighs> Friends, we have all been like the Levite and the priest. We have all walked by neighbors who needed our help and justified in our minds our inaction by categorizing them as a non-neighbor. Or sometimes we've kind of been like the lawyer, haven't we? We've sort of just been like, well, who is my neighbor? Not everyone. And so therefore I don't have to love these people. So what does this mean as it applies to our conversation this morning on abortion? It means that whether you've had an abortion or not, friends, Nobody in this church or anywhere on the planet loves their neighbor or their unborn neighbor the way that the law of God commands. The playing field is level here, okay? Nobody can fulfill this law, this standard of love that God requires. Mother Teresa fails this test. The local pregnancy resource center director fails this test. I fail this test. You fail this test. In short, friends, we are not righteous. We fail utterly to love our neighbors the way that God commands. We need an alien righteousness imputed to us by the Savior of the world who came to die for us and offer a free gospel of grace for those of us who would repent of our sins and turn to the creator of the universe who came bodily into this world as an unborn child to save and redeem us. This is important, friends, because I'm not here to pass blame this morning, okay? I'm not here to blame abortion on the church. I'm here as someone who has also regularly failed to love my neighbor and my unborn neighbor. The playing field is level before the cross. And so the good news, friends, is that Christ is the greater good Samaritan, okay? I don't want to leave you burdened with this inability to love your neighbors the way that God commands. I want to tell you that none of us can do it, but God has already done it. Jesus is the greater good Samaritan. We are not the good Samaritan in the parable of the good Samaritan. We are either the Levite and the priest walking by people who need our help, or we're the lawyer trying to create categories of neighbor and non-neighbor so we can conveniently shirk ourselves of the responsibility of loving those we don't want to love. Christ is the greater good Samaritan. We're the bleeding victim in that parable, friends. We're the ones bleeding out in our sin and our choices. And Jesus comes to us, our enemies who are opposed to him and loves us lavishly and dies for us. First John 4.10 says this quite beautifully. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so in response to this gospel, friends, we want to respond rightly to the transformative nature of the gospel on our hearts. First John 4:19 says, "We love because he first loved us, so whoever loves God must also love his brother." Listen, our desire to save unborn children from abortion and love their parents is not done in order to win God's approval and love. We do it because we already have his love. We're not trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just be better Christians who love those who need our help better because we can't will up that kind of perfect love, can we? We can't manufacture that type of perfect love, but Christ can do it in you. 
And we respond to the fact that he's already showed us this crazy love and we respond correctly. Our motivation to love our unborn neighbor and their mothers and fathers is done because we already have the love of God. So we seek to save unborn children from immediate death. Why? Because we have been saved from eternal death, haven't we? We love because he first loved us. So friends, what does this mean for us this morning? How do we respond? How do we bring this love and compassion and truth to the issue of abortion? I believe the answer is simple. I believe the answer is that we love our unborn neighbors. Now it's easy to say that, but what does that look like? How do we love our unborn neighbors? How do we defend them in a crazy, crazy pro-abortion culture that now launches movements called hashtag shout your abortion? and promulgates abortion as reproductive health care and women's rights, except for the 50% of unborn women who were denied those women's rights so much for feminism. Just like the lawyer in this parable, friends, wanted to define certain people as neighbors and non-neighbors, the unborn children in our midst in America are almost exclusively defined by the culture as non-neighbors, aren't they? Non-persons, non-humans. That is how the society and the pro-choice movement define unborn children as non-neighbors in the same way that the lawyer was creating categories of people that were non-neighbors. And friends, our world has a bloody, bloody history of doing this. Of defining certain people out of existence in, in order that we can mistreat them or eliminate them. You need look no further than slavery in our own country, in the Holocaust in Germany, right? A group of people in control decided that these people over here were not persons. They were not neighbors. They don't have the same rights that we do. Therefore, we can mistreat them or eliminate them if we want to. This is not the first time this has happened. Well, this dehumanization of our unborn neighbors has led to the death of over 61 million unborn children in America alone since 1973. 61 million? How do you even wrap your minds around that? It's estimated that around 12 million Jews were slaughtered, 12 million people, 6 million Jews, 12 million people were slaughtered in the Holocaust by the Nazis. 61 million babies in the last 47 years in America. Unfortunately, friends, Joseph Stalin got one thing right when he said that one death is a statistic, but a million, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. How can we wrap our minds around this number of lost lives? So friends, maybe you don't think the title neighbor applies to the unborn. Maybe you've never thought of the unborn as a neighbor. Maybe you don't share my position. Maybe you identify as pro-choice. Or maybe you're pro-life, but you've never known how to articulate and defend that belief that the unborn is a neighbor and a person and deserving of the same rights. And so together, let's examine who the unborn is. And let's see if they're a neighbor and a person. And if so, how we can defend them as image bearers of God. Friends, there's only one question that we need to examine this morning to determine if the unborn is a neighbor, okay? To determine if they're a person like you and I, or if they're just an insensate clump of tissue for which abortion gently suctions out the contents of the womb. Only one question we need to answer to determine who the unborn is. And to illustrate what that one question is that I'm hoping will 
enable you to simplify this seemingly complex debate so that you can be a courageous defender of life in the culture, I want you to imagine this following scenario. I want you to expand your imagination with me for a moment. And I want you to imagine that you're standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening, okay? Because God hasn't blessed you with a dishwasher. So you're cleaning your dishes by hand. And as you're cleaning your dishes, your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. Your back is turned and you hear your three-year-old toddler say, mommy or daddy, can I kill this? Now, many of your toddlers have probably asked that question, but what's going to be the first question out of your mouth in response to the question, can I kill this? What is it exactly? Or kill what? Because if you turn around and your toddler is holding a cockroach, you might say, here, son, here's a hammer. Don't tell mom. But if he's holding the neighbor newborn kitty, I'm guessing you'd have a different response unless you're a vindictive cat hater, in which case no judgment. (laughs) But what if you turned around and your toddler was holding his little sister by the throat? You need counseling now, don't you? You couldn't answer the question, can I kill this mommy until you answered the question, what is it? (laughs) What do you got? Similarly, friends, on the issue of abortion, We cannot answer the question, can we kill the unborn? Because guess what? Everyone agrees abortion kills something. Until we first answer the question, what is the unborn? What are they? This simplifies a seemingly complex debate into a very clear debate, doesn't it? Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist and author, says that if the unborn are not human... So if they're not one of us, then no justification for abortion is necessary. Meaning you don't have to justify abortion if the thing being aborted is not a human. If it's just a clump of tissues, then nobody cares. But then he says, if the unborn are human, then no justification for abortion is adequate. Does that make sense? You can't provide an adequate justification of the killing of an unborn child if they're a child, if they're a human being like you and I. What is the unborn is the central question in the issue of abortion. So if the unborn is a human, then guess what? The unborn is our neighbor, isn't it? Because the Bible is very clear that every human being is our neighbor. We do not get to create categories of neighbor and non-neighbor. Every human being is our neighbor. So I'm going to answer this question with you this morning. What is the unborn? In three ways. And I'm hoping this will be a really simplistic and accessible approach for you. Because here's the thing. I don't want this to be a one-off message. I don't want you leaving feeling super encouraged, but having no idea how to defend life and engage with those in your lives who identify as pro-choice. I want you to be equipped with resources and tools to actually speak up and do as Proverbs 31.8 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So we're going to answer this question, what is the unborn, in three ways. We're going to answer it scientifically, we're going to answer it theologically, and we're going to answer it philosophically. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by each of those three approaches, okay? So let's start on the first one. What is the unborn can be answered scientifically. We don't have to answer this question by turning to partisan politics, even to religion, or certainly not personal opinion. Because while people try to treat the issue of abortion as a subjective personal issue, right? My body, my choice. They try to treat it as a subjective personal issue for which the morality is decided by each person. However, we can know who the unborn child is by looking at what the science says. And isn't it interesting that those who identify as pro-choice, they often also identify as being pro-science. 
Alrighty then. Let's meet them in their camp. Let's identify some common ground. You want to talk pro-science? What does the science teach about who the unborn child is in the womb? Well, the science of embryology, which is what? Simply the study of the embryo. What's an embryo? A human being at a very early stage in their physical development. The science of embryology tells us what we know about life in the womb. And we've known this, by the way, for decades. This is what the science of embryology teaches us. From the moment of conception, which is the earliest stages of development, the moment sperm and egg meet, sperm and egg die, and a new human being comes into existence. From that moment, from conception, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. Distinct, living, and whole. I did not use these terms to describe the pro-life position in a more persuasive manner. You'll find these terms in any embryology textbook on any university campus that hasn't banned inconvenient truths that might lead to a pro-life perspective. So what does distinct mean? Distinct means that you're unique, right? You're a unique individual, which means that I'm not you and you're not me. You're a distinct, unique individual from the moment of conception. Which is interesting because the rallying cry of the pro-choice movement has often been what? My body, my choice. That assumes that there's how many bodies involved? One, right? My body, my choice. It assumes that there's one. Is that true? Well, if you care about science, you have to say no. Because according to the science of embryology, which has nothing to do with political partisanship or religion, the unborn child is a distinct human being from the moment of conception, which means that the body in her body is not her body. And if the baby's part of the mother's body, do you know what kind of strange conclusions we have to deal with? Pregnant women must have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two hearts, two brains, two different DNA codes, potentially two different blood types. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, now pregnant women have male genitalia. Now, clearly none of this makes sense because the body in her body is not her body. As I said earlier, did you know most people agree abortion kills something? If abortion kills something, but there's only one body involved, the mother, why isn't every pregnant woman dead after an abortion? Because a different body was killed, wasn't it? The body in her body is not her body. What is the unborn? They're a distinct human being. Secondly, they're living. What does that mean? It means that dead things don't grow. And it means that the unborn child meets all of the requirements for a living thing that you learned in high school biology. It also means that pregnant women do not will their unborn children to grow. So I have a two-year-old, I watched my wife be pregnant. Here's something that never happened. My wife never woke me up in the middle of the night shaking me saying, babe, wake up, wake up, remind our baby to grow. Come whisper to my womb. Because he was developing himself from within. Unborn children develop themselves independent of the wishes of their mother. They're living. We know this. They're distinct, they're living, and they're whole. Okay, what does whole mean? It doesn't mean fully developed. To be a whole human being does not mean to be fully developed. It means that you have everything you need to realize your full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Here's what I mean by that. I'm 28 and I'm not 40. Do I have everything I need to realize my development as a 40-year-old? Of course, I just need time, right? I will get to 40 unless someone dismembers me. Which is what abortion does to every unborn child who already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as one of us. By the way, my wife recently found out that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s, which was very encouraging for her. She's really holding out hope for me. <laughs> so you see, 
I have everything I need to realize a 40-year-old's level of development. I just need time. The unborn child from the moment of conception has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as one of us. They just need time. This is what the science of embryology teaches us. You, from the moment of conception, friends, were a distinct living and whole human being. This is plain experimental scientific fact. It's not partisan politics. It's not religious opinion. It's simply what science has taught us. So you did not come from an embryo, friends, and then magically transition into a human being. You once were an embryo. What's an embryo? A human being at a very early stage in their physical development. Zygote, embryo, fetus, infant, toddler, teenager, adult. These all describe a human being, the same human being, at different stages in their development. So we can answer this question, what is the unborn scientifically? They're a human being, plain and simple. Secondly, let's answer that question theologically, because as believers and followers of Jesus, we believe that this word is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God. And the Bible's very clear who human beings are, in fact, who all human beings are, whether they're unborn or born. And we find this beautiful message at the beginning of the human story. What does the Bible have to say about human beings? Genesis 1.26 says, So God created human beings in his own image. Human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's very simple. Every human being is an image bearer of God. What does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that the same God who was there at the beginning of all things and before, who breathed out the Milky Way, who laughed animals into existence, who dropped oceans and said, it is good, breathed life into you at the moment of conception in your mother's wombs and said that you were the peak of his creation, more valuable than anything else he had created and gave you dominance over the creation he had made to be stewards of. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. It means the very divine spark in the soul of God is in you and you bear his image and his likeness. Every human being is created in the image of God. And what did we just learn from the science of embryology that unborn children are what? Human beings. So if the unborn child is a human being, the unborn child is an image bearer of God because human beings bear the image of the divine, all-good, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, the Bible, friends, has always forbidden the shedding of innocent blood. The Bible takes the shedding of innocent blood very seriously. Jeremiah 22.3 says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Proverbs says that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. What is abortion, friends, but the shedding of the innocent blood of unborn image bearers who share our common human nature and value? Because human beings are created in the image of God and the unborn child is a human being, the unborn child is created in the image of God and abortion snuffs out and dismembers the body of an image bearer of God in their mother's womb. So what is the unborn? They're a human being like you and I. 
What is the unborn? They're actual image bearers of God. And this is why Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that your frame was not hidden from God when you were woven together in the dark of the womb. He saw your unformed substance. And so the psalmist says, thank you, God, for making me so wonderfully complex. That is every single one of you from the moment of conception. You are not like an animal. You are not like other life in this world. You are a distinct, living, and whole human being created in the image of God. Lastly, we have to answer the question, what is the unborn philosophically? Why does this matter? Philosophy, friends, deals with questions of ultimate value, right? Value statements like what makes us valuable? Who gets to decide who lives and who dies? Do we have equal value or are some human beings more valuable than others? We have to make a case today as Christians for the equal value of the unborn child. And do you know why that is so crazy? Because those who identify as pro-choice friends are freely admitting that the unborn child is a human being. Did you know more and more people today who identify as pro-choice or are part of the pro-choice movement, they say that you're right when you say the unborn child's a human being. Do you know that? Very few pro-choice activists in the pro-choice movement today are saying the unborn is not human because they look really, really, really foolish when they say that. Because we know what the science says, right? We know what the science of embryology says from the moment of conception, that's a human being. So more and more people who defend abortion today, they're saying, yep, that's a human being in the womb. It is a biological human, but it doesn't matter. And pregnant women should have the moral and legal continued right to pay an abortion is to dismember their unborn offspring in the womb through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. What lunacy, what moral depravity to admit that this class of human beings are humans, but that it doesn't matter that you can kill them anyways? What? So sadly and tragically, we actually have to approach the culture and say, yes, all human beings are equally valuable, whether unborn or born. So we turn to philosophy to make this case right? This defense of the equal value of unborn children. Friends, separating the term human being from person has always had really horrendous and disastrous consequences in our country, in our world. I told you this earlier, right? This is not the first time a class of human beings have decided that another class of human beings are humans, but not persons. That's how our country treated African-Americans at one point. We said that they didn't, weren't deserving of the term person. What a horrendous thing to do. And Nazis said about Jews that they were humans, but not persons. And now our country and our Supreme Court in 1973 said that unborn children are humans. We know that, but they're not persons. So we can kill them. The consequences of treating human beings as non-persons always has horrendous consequences. And usually it's a really high body count of dead human beings sacrificed on an, on an evil ideology. And now the same thing is happening to unborn children. So we're going to make a case, okay, for the value of our unborn neighbors as having equal value to you and I. And we're not going to cite Bible verses to make our case because while it is the objectively true authoritative word of God, are your pro-choice atheist friends going to become pro-life because you read them a Bible verse? 
Maybe through a work of the Holy Spirit, but probably not. Because if your only reason for being pro-life is the Bible says so, and they say, I don't believe in the authority of the scriptures, why would they change their minds? Here's the thing. If something is true, it's true regardless of whether the Bible says it's true or not. Things are not true because the Bible says they're true. The Bible acknowledges things that are objectively true. So abortion is wrong regardless of whether the Bible says it's wrong or not. There is such a thing as objective truth, and we can defend that truth in the public square without citing Bible verses to make our case. So here's our case, okay? Here's our case for the value of unborn children as being the same value as you and I. It goes like this. There is no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were in your mother's womb and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. I'll I'll make it an even shorter sentence. There is no value-giving difference between you, the unborn human, and you, the born human, that makes it okay to kill you, the unborn human, that makes it okay to kill you in the womb. Does that make sense? Now, are there differences between unborn people and born people? Of course. And if I found the 16-week photo that your mother had of you when you were in her womb, and I held it up to your face today, could we identify any differences, friends? Of course. You look different. I'm not saying unborn humans and born humans have no differences. I'm saying that none of those differences are value-giving. None of those differences matter to the question of human value, to the question of equal rights, meaning that you have equal value regardless of your differences because our human value is found in our human nature, not in how we differ from one another. Why is this important? Because... The pro-choice movement who supports the killing of unborn children says that we can kill unborn children, we can abort them because they're so different from us. Taking a page out of the bigotry of racism in America that said that blacks were not full persons because they were different. And that was an evil ideology, wasn't it? Because we as human beings are equally valuable because of our human nature and not our skin color, right? Well, what do pro-choicers say about unborn children? We can kill them because they're different than us. Here are the four differences that pro-choice people use to dehumanize the unborn and strip personhood from them to justify killing them. You need to know what these four are because these are the four differences that are used as a rallying cry and as a justification to kill unborn children. The four differences are summarized in the acronym SLED. S-L-E-D, a very difficult concept for us in Southern California where we can't even spell the word snow, but work with me. Size, level of development, environment, or location, and dependency. I'm going to go through each one, okay? Is the unborn child smaller than the newborn child? Of course. But aren't newborn children smaller than toddlers and toddlers smaller than teenagers? If you're under six foot three, you're smaller than me. Bad news, guys, you have less human value than me. Of course not, because human value is not based on size. It's based on what? A human nature, which you had at the moment of conception. So what do pro-choicers say about unborn children? What does the pro-abortion movement say about babies in the womb? Oh, come on, that thing that you can hardly see at four weeks old in the womb? How is that a person with rights? Dehumanizing actual human beings simply because they're smaller. But if it would be wrong for me to kill you because you're smaller than me, guess what? It's equally wrong to kill unborn children simply because they're smaller than us. If what? If they're human beings. 
which the science says they are. Here's the second difference that the pro-abortion movement uses to dehumanize unborn children. Level of development. Yes, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. But why should that matter? Newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Your parents are more developed than you. Your kids are less developed than you. Does that mean that grandpas have more human value than their grandsons, and therefore they can kill their grandsons? Of course not. Unless you're in the womb, then the pro-abortion movement says you have no value because you're not developed enough. Our human value is not based on our size or our level of development. And yet they say that we can kill unborn children in the womb because the baby can't feel pain. It's not viable. It doesn't have brain waves yet. What is necessary, though, for an unborn child to realize the capacity of feeling pain, being viable, and having brain waves? A level of development. They will realize those capacities given their development. So we do not have human value because of our size or our level of development. We have human value because of our human nature. So if it would be wrong for me to kill you if you're less developed than me, it's equally wrong to kill unborn children simply because they're less developed than us if they're human beings and the science says they are. So what's the third difference that the pro-abortion movement uses to dehumanize unborn children? Environment. Location. They say that it's okay to kill the baby through abortion because it's in the womb. It's in the mother's womb. It's in a different location. Therefore, it's not a person with rights. Really. By the way, just like plantation owners said that because African Americans were on their property, they could treat them however they wanted. And now we say the same thing about unborn children who are in the property of women's bodies. But are we valuable because of where we find ourselves? No, we're valuable because of a human nature. <laughs> Did you know the distance between us, friends, is a significantly further distance than the baby travels during childbirth. How far does a baby move during childbirth? Six inches. And our country says, if you're in the womb, if you're a human in a womb, then you can be dismembered through the point of birth. And that's a mother's moral and legal right. But if you're born, apparently magical personhood conferring fairy dust gets sprinkled on you during childbirth. And in those 60 seconds and six inches, congratulations, human rights, you come out a person. It's the magical birth canal. What lunacy. Because where one finds themselves has no bearing on who they are as a human. If you're a human being with equal rights, despite the fact that you're not where I am, then the unborn child is also a human being with equal rights just because they find themselves in the exact environment that a human being is supposed to be in at that stage of development, the womb. And by the way, friends, the womb, the uterus, has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves in America in 2020. You are more at risk of being murdered in a womb than you are residing or living in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slum. And it was supposed to be the environment that you were created to be protected in and valued. Do you know the beauty of the womb? Do you know that some women who are pregnant have undergone chemo because they have cancer and the baby was born fine and flawless? Because you were supposed to be protected there. And it's become the most dangerous place for a human being to reside. Where one is has no bearing on who one is. These are the first three differences the pro-abortion movement uses to dehumanize the unborn and say, because they're smaller, less developed, and located in a different environment, they can be killed. Lastly, dependency. 
And this is the real hook, line, and sinker for the pro-abortion movement. This is their biggest argument. They say that you can kill a baby through abortion because the baby's dependent on the mother. And because the baby's dependent on the mother and it's her body, it's her right to decide whether to give sustenance and dependency to the child that in 99.5% of cases she created through a consensual act of sex. If your dependency, friends, on someone or something else dictates your value and right to life, then we live in a very dangerous world where we can justify killing anyone who's dependent on someone or something else. Does that make sense? If your actual value and right to not be killed by someone else is purely dependent on whether you're dependent on someone or something else, then why can't we kill born people who are dependent on caretakers, heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, or life support? They're dependent on something without which they cannot continue to live. Anyone want to get on board with killing those people? Of course not, but it's the same worldview. It's the same justification when pro-abortion activists say you can kill the unborn because they're dependent on the mother. So what? It is in virtue of being an unborn human being to be dependent on your mother. By the way, does that dependency stop after birth? What happens if you leave an infant in the crib and do nothing? They die and you're charged with infanticide. But if that same child... 60 seconds before birth, six inches away in their mother's womb, equally dependent on the same mother, then therefore it's okay to kill them because they're dependent on the mother. What an evil ideology. Our human value, friends, is not based on our size. It's not based on our level of development. It's not based on our environment or location, and it's not based on our dependency. It's based on our human nature, which the unborn child shares from the moment of conception as an image bearer of God. So what is the unborn? They're a human being like you and I. They're an image bearer of God. And they have the equal rights and value as you and I. Now notice, did I, in making my case for the value of the unborn child, cite Bible verses to make my case? No. I made a human equality argument. I said that if you believe that all human beings have an equal right to life and value, you have to grant that value and right to life to all human beings, whether they're born or unborn. We can defend the value of our unborn neighbors like this to a culture and society that doesn't share a Christian worldview and in many cases applauds and cheers for the right to kill unborn children. So this is how we can defend life. By answering the question, what is the unborn? We know this. This is not complex. Hopefully this has equipped you to defend life and speak up. However, we need to put some flesh on this conversation. We need to humanize this a little bit. We need to actually have tools in place and resources and a plan and a game plan to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers. We can defend them like this and we need to because the capital C church in America has been deafeningly silent on the issue of abortion, but practically getting our hands dirty. What does it look like to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers with the compassion and radical grace of Jesus Christ? I have three simple steps for us on how we can love our unborn neighbors. Firstly, friends, we need to acknowledge together that what? The unborn is our neighbor. Maybe we haven't thought enough about the unborn as being a neighbor. And admittedly, this can be difficult, right? Because we all see our homeless neighbors. Many of us see our political refugee neighbors. We see our literal neighbors. But how many of us see our unborn neighbors? They're the most hidden class of human beings. They reside in their mother's wombs. Very few people see them. And then their mothers take them behind sterile clinic doors to have 
their limbs ripped off. So we're going to give you an opportunity this morning to see these babies in the womb, to see a six and seven week baby in their mother's womb. You know, most women won't know they're pregnant until four weeks. So the earliest abortions are five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks. This is the vast majority of abortions. And it's defended by the pro-choice movement under the guise, it's just a blob of tissue. Well, you're about to see how human a blob of tissue looks at six and seven weeks. These are not clumps of insensate tissue. These are image bearers of God who share our common human nature. So let's play this brief video clip as you see what God sees when he knits life together in the womb. A touch to the mouth area causes the embryo to reflexively withdraw its head. The external ear is beginning to take shape. By six weeks, blood cell formation is underway in the liver, where lymphocytes are now present. This type of white blood cell is a key part of the developing immune system. The diaphragm, the primary muscle used in breathing, is largely formed by six weeks. portion of the intestine now protrudes temporarily into the umbilical cord. This normal process, called physiologic herniation, makes room for other developing organs in the abdomen. At six weeks, the hand plates develop a subtle flattening. Brain waves have been recorded as early as six weeks and two days. Nipples appear along the sides of the trunk shortly before reaching their final location on the front of the chest. By six and a half weeks, the elbows are distinct. The fingers are beginning to separate and hand movement can be seen. Bone formation, called ossification, begins within the clavicle or collarbone and the bones of the upper and lower jaw. Did you see the heart of that precious image bearer beating through its translucent skin? That is an image bearer of God, a human being like you and I that's just a little bit smaller, just a little bit earlier in their physical development, yet still has intrinsic value and dignity in the sight of God and ought to have that value in the sight of the culture. I understand that when we show imagery like this and we see the actual babies who are the victims of abortion, that this might hit very close to home for some of you. I know that many of you in this room will have had an experience with abortion, or maybe as the man you paid for it or pressured it or stood by and did nothing. So I, I want to speak to you this morning, friends, and I want to tell you that I'm not here to shame and condemn you. I'm not here to make you feel worse if you haven't gone through a journey of healing already. In fact, I'm here to remind you of what I believe Jesus would tell you if he was preaching this sermon. And I know that's a heck of a statement to say, but I believe this is faithful to his gospel. I believe he would tell you that Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. 
Abortion is not a blacklist sin, friends, that somehow bans you from the grace of God. And if you want evidence of this, if you, if you, want, if you want evidence of this from the word of God, that abortion is not a blacklist sin, look no further than the example of King David. A man after God's own heart. I think David had some spiritual speed bumps in his walk with God, don't you? Not the best exemplar of following God and yet use powerfully. What do I mean by that? Rather than fighting on the front lines of a battle with his army where he should have been, he's hanging out on his roof, checking out a woman taking a shower, for goodness sakes. He decides he wants to enjoy her more than just visually. He brings Bathsheba into his castle. They have sex and create a baby. Of course, Bathsheba is married. So in order to hide and cover up his sexual sin, David arranges the death of an innocent human being. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Friends, abortion arranges the death of an innocent human being. And we need to call it as such. We cannot resort to the euphemisms of the pro-abortion movement that call it anything less than the arranging of the death of an innocent human being. But what? But when the prophet Nathan confronted David, David falls to his knees and repents in dust and ashes. And God forgives David in that moment and he renews David and he calls him a man after his own heart. But there were consequences to David's sin, weren't there? He didn't get away scot-free. The baby that he created with Bathsheba died. But he said, regarding his son, he said, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. Do you know what that means for those of you who have had an experience with abortion? It means that not only is God faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness and cleanse you and use you, but it also means that if you accept that gospel of grace and repent and ask for his healing touch in your life, that you're going to see your baby in heaven again one day. It means that they're seated on the lap of Jesus, smiling over you and waiting to welcome you into eternal glory with a heavenly embrace. That's the only hope for you. If you put your hope anywhere else, you will be let down except in the gospel of Jesus Christ who came as an unborn child to rescue and redeem you, friends. So please, if you've had an abortion, do not leave here under the weight of condemnation and shame. Leave running into the arms of Jesus and the team and the pastors here who would love to pray over you and walk you through a journey of healing. There's a pregnancy resource center here at the back today. They would love to meet with you as well and walk you through that journey. So that like David... God can use the dust of your life to create beauty and use you to help where you used to hurt. Hear that and receive that. I believe that's faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we love our unborn neighbors? We need to acknowledge that they are our neighbor. Secondly, we need to repent for not being good neighbors. Here's the point, friends. Whether you've had an abortion or not, whether you've pressured it, paid for it, whether you've been a great pro-life advocate your entire life, we have all failed to love our unborn neighbor the way that the law of God commands. We need to repent for not being good neighbors to a victim class that it is currently legal to kill under the guise of reproductive health care. We have not done enough. We need to repent. There's a promise in scripture for the people of God when they repent. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Does our land need some healing in 2020? 
hear that and receive that. We need to repent together, friends, for not being good neighbors. Thirdly, we need to respond with words and with deeds. What does this mean? This doesn't mean working up a more perfect righteousness. This doesn't mean pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Be better, Christian. That's not what this means. Responding with words and deeds is to put our faith into action and to prove that our faith is real. We respond with words by defending life. Listen, I don't expect you to remember everything I said this morning. This was a lot of information. So listen to this on Facebook. Listen to this when it's on the website. Continue to equip yourself to use words, to speak up, to stand in the gap, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, our unborn image bearers. I want to leave you with a resource so you can do that. I don't, I don't want you to leave here feeling overwhelmed by an hour-long sermon and not knowing how to engage. I want to give you a resource. So, hey, I have a podcast. I don't want to give a shameless plug. It's not about me. I just believe it's a valuable resource for you to equip yourself to defend life. It's called Unaborted. Because guess what? As Ronald Reagan said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. We are all unaborted human beings, and it's time for us to rise up and defend the rights of unborn human beings whose lives are at threat of abortion. This is available on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, as well as YouTube if you like to watch it. It's a weekly show, and I simply examine what's happening in the culture, what's happening in the politics and the legislation, because that's important, and what's happening in the spiritual battlefield over the lives of unborn children. You can subscribe on any of those platforms. And if you want to help me out, because a lot of abortion apologists troll my podcast and give me one stars to try to drive down the ratings, scroll down, give me five stars, let me know what you think. That helps me actually reach more people and young people who are increasingly listening to podcasts so we can reach them with a message of life. Secondly, when you leave this morning at the back table in the foyer, you'll find a connect card. If you fill it out with your email and you give it to me, I'll add you to my email newsletter list and you'll get equipping and training delivered to your inbox on how to defend life. We need to defend the unborn child with our words. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is just saying, have reasons for why you're a Christian. Here's the thing. If we should have reasons and a defense for the gospel, we should also have a defense as to how the gospel informs our perspectives on issues like life. We need to respond with our words. Secondly, we need to respond with deeds. Here's just a few points before we go. Here's how we can respond with deeds. Firstly, we need to create a culture of acceptance and not shame. This church does not do this. They do not create a culture of shame. But the American church and this church need to continue creating a culture of acceptance so that when a woman is in an unplanned pregnancy, she, her first thought is not, I need to run to Planned Parenthood and schedule the death of my child, but rather, I need to go run and tell my pastor in my community group. Because I know that while they will not praise my sinful choices, they will love and accept me. And we need to create that culture of acceptance for these unborn children whose mothers are often too shameful to tell anyone. That's not always our fault, but we need to work on creating a culture of acceptance. Secondly, offer to pay the bills if necessary to help women in unplanned pregnancies. And thank God that this church does this so well. But can you imagine if the American church was standing outside of abortion clinics on the days they performed abortions every day with signs that said, we will pay for your delivery fee. We will pay for your rent. We will give you our back house until you're on your feet and we will love you and your unborn child. We need to make financial sacrifices to love our unborn neighbors, as the Good Samaritan did. Thirdly, advertise the church's willingness to adopt and raise any child. 
more of us need to significantly consider and pray before the Lord if we're called to adoption. Not enough of the church is doing this. I'm not shaming you and telling you you need to do better. I'm saying we need to pray and ask God if he would lead us to do that because there is no such thing as an unwanted child in the eyes of God and there shouldn't be in the eyes of the church. We should be the ones rushing in saying we will literally adopt your baby right now and pay for the costs associated with your pregnancy if you will just carry to term and we will embrace this baby. Fourthly, vote pro-life. I won't spend a lot of time on this because Pastor Jeff has done a very good job on this. Listen, Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat, amen? But listen, there's only one political party defending abortion through the day of birth, okay? I'm not here to demonize anyone because I'm more concerned with your heart being right before God. But it is as wrong to vote for a candidate who protects and promises to protect abortion as it would have been wrong to vote for racist Democrats who promised to protect slavery in the 1800s. If you think that's a controversial statement and you're mad at me, that's okay, come talk to me afterwards. But here's what I would ask you to consider. Do you believe the unborn child has the same exact equal moral worth as African Americans? If you believe they do, then the intellectually consistent position is to say it is as wrong to vote for pro-abortion politicians as it would have been to vote for racist politicians if you believe both victim classes are equally valuable. You have to vote pro-life. Fifthly, support pro-life organizations in your local pregnancy resource center. And this church does this so well, and that's why I'm so grateful to be here with Calvary Chapel of Downey. The Pregnancy Resource Center, Living Help Center of Downey is in the back. If you are not supporting them on a monthly basis in your own personal family life, consider doing so. Secondly, if this has been helpful for you, I do this all around the country in the state to young people, high school students, college students, and youth groups. If you wanna consider supporting me on a monthly basis, that enables me to reach more people. These are some of the things we can do with our deeds to make sure that our faith is, is real and is authentic, evidencing itself in works. All right, friends, here's the last question I think we're left with, okay? I think it's the question that's assumed in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think it's the question seeping underneath the surface when Jesus tells this parable to this lawyer. I think that question is, what type of people are we going to be? He uses this perfect example of love of the Good Samaritan. He uses it as a mirror back at the lawyer to say, are you a good neighbor? What type of person are you going to be? Are we going to be like the Levite and the priest who say we love God and know the law of God, but when we see a bleeding victim, we pretend like we don't see them and we walk by on the other side of the road? Or are we going to be like the lawyer and just silently create categories of non-neighbor in our head so we can conveniently shirk ourselves of the responsibility of loving those that we don't want to love? Or are we going to be like the good Samaritan who makes radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love actual bleeding victims? in threat of immediate death. I want to read to you the final words of Jesus. Let's finish with his words in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And rather than picturing the man who got beat up right on the road, I want you to picture the bleeding unborn child who is America's bleeding victim at a million babies killed a year. And I want you to picture that bleeding victim and picture them. Picture that precious image bearer of God having their limbs ripped from their body and hear this word from Jesus. He turns to the lawyer and he says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the bleeding victim? And the lawyer tells Jesus, the one who showed him mercy, obviously, the one who loved the bleeding victim. And Jesus says to him, now you go and do likewise. Pray with me, friends.
Father, thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews says, but you're also the author of life. You knit every life together in the womb in this room, and you say that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have a purpose for their life, that you don't make accidents, and that you were intimately involved in their life from the moment that they came into existence. Bless us with that knowledge. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and send us out equipped to defend life. Make this message not a one-off in the hearts of the believers in this room this morning, but send them out equipped and encouraged to be a voice for the unborn and to defend life and to stand in the gap and to not be silent and to show a compassionate and courageous, scandalous gospel love to unborn children and their mothers and fathers. We need you to do this in and through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and please go and do likewise. Go and do likewise and love your unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers by applying your skill sets, your time, your talent, and your treasure to ending the atrocity of abortion. And let's make 2020 the year where Roe versus Wade is overturned. Hey, if this was a helpful message to you, please share this with someone in your life. Forward this along uh, so that more people can be encouraged to step up for life or reconsider their position in the light of reason, in the light of science, in the light of history. If this episode and this podcast is helpful to you, please give us a five-star rating and review. It actually really helps because the abortion crazies troll this podcast and give us nasty ratings and reviews. So help that, that helps us reach more people. If you want to become a patron of the show and help us expand the production value of this show, uh, including bringing on bigger name guests, as well as perhaps moving to two episodes a week, then become a patron of the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and sign up for five, 10, $15 a month. And that actually helps us a lot be able to cover the costs associated with the show and bring more great content and commentary to you, equipping you to defend life and be a voice for the unborn. If you want to get more information, head over to my website at sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to view my speaking schedule if you want to come hear me speak live and local. And until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. (laughs) 